0: you're turning to Exodus 10, let me ask you to think for a moment about the creation of the world. The creation of the world. How did that happen? I know it's been many years since our in-depth study of Genesis 1 through 11. But you'll remember we saw there that when God first created the world, it started out as chaos. God began with with water and darkness and emptiness and void, and there was no order to the world. And then over six days, God began to give the world its order. He created light and separated light from darkness. He created the sky and separated the sky from the waters. He created land and separated land from water. And then he created the stars and the galaxies, the sun and the moon. He Created plants and vegetation. Then he created animals, some that could fly, others that could swim, others that walked the earth. And then finally, last of all, God created man. Well, what we have been seeing as God has unleashed plague after plague after plague upon ancient Egypt is the return to chaos. What we've been seeing in these plagues is the decreation of the land of Egypt because everything in those six days of creation has now been affected. The livestock is now dead. The vegetation that survived the plague of hell has now been destroyed by the swarms of locusts. The air has been filled with flies with gnats and other flying things. The water has been turned to blood. In different plagues at different times, God has struck every part of creation. All that that remains are the bookends. The very first act of order that God performed upon this earth was the creation of light. And the final and last and climactic act of God's creative work was the creation of man. And so in these final two plagues, we're going to see God strike light, the sun. And then we're going to see him strike man with the death of the firstborns. In other words, God has left nothing untouched by these curses. The creation order that God has given this world has been taken away from the kingdom of Egypt. And so John Mackey says this about the ninth plague. He says, In it, an ominous darkness suddenly grips Egypt with paralyzing intensity. And though the darkness does not itself directly bring death, the source of life and light for Egypt has been overpowered. And the threat that hangs over the land is made very evident. There is a note of finality in this plague. Darkness had been characteristic of the world before it was ordered by the divine decree. So now the order that had prevailed in Egypt is being reversed by the divine decree of judgment back into primal chaos. So this is the decreation of Egypt that we have been witnessing The Egyptians wanted to ascribe every aspect of creation to some pagan deity. But all of Egypt's gods have been powerless to stop this decreation. God, the God of Moses, the God of the Hebrews, has shown that it is He and He alone who has sovereignty over every aspect of this world. He alone creates and He alone decreates. He has the whole world in His hands. So let's see this tonight. We come to the ninth plague. We're going to begin reading in verse 21. Verse 21, and this is the Word of God. Exodus 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again let's begin with our observations here's our first observations about this passage number one this final plague of the three triads came with no announcement this final plague of the three triads came with no announcement so we've seen before that the ten plagues Are actually three sets of three three triads followed by the final climactic tenth plague that they've been leading up to so when you think of the first nine plagues separate them into three triads you begin to see some parallels between each set of three Uh, each set of three seems to be its own cycle of plagues following the same pattern each time and just like the third plague and just like the sixth plague This ninth plague comes as a judgment from God against Pharaoh's hard heartedness. There is no warning for the third, sixth, or ninth plague. Each one of them comes after Pharaoh has pretended to repent and then he didn't. And each one of them comes upon him as judgment for his failure to follow through. This plague comes with no warning. No opportunity for Pharaoh to repent. No opportunity for Pharaoh to prevent this plague. This plague falls on Egypt in the same way that Jesus will return to rescue His people and judge this world. It came like a thief in the night. The people of Egypt did not expect this darkness. They did not go out to their grocery stores and load up on milk and bread, saying, three days of pitch darkness are coming. This was not a natural eclipse that could be foreseen by their astronomers or their astrologers. This darkness came suddenly unannounced. And that's exactly how it will be for this world when the day of judgment comes. People will not wake up that morning thinking, well, today is the day. No, their minds will be fixed on the typical, the routine, the ordinary. What do I need to get done today? What are my plans for the weekend? Hey, did you see that show on television last night? And then all of a sudden, like a thief in the night, the typical, the routine, the ordinary, it will all be gone. And All that will matter in that moment is your eternal soul standing before the king of ages, ready to give your account. Your eternal dwelling place, my eternal dwelling place, the place we belong, it will be determined on that day of judgment, and it will come suddenly and unannounced. Second observation. This was a darkness to be felt. This was a darkness to be felt, right? There's darkness, and then there is darkness. Um, There is a kind of soft darkness that maybe most of us experience when we turn the lights off in our room to go to sleep at night, right? where maybe there's, there's just a little light in the room or, or a very faint light in the room. Maybe at first it appears dark, but we let our eyes adjust for a moment, and even in the dark we can begin to make out some little shapes in the room. We, we can s- kind of see where the dresser is or where the bed is. Have you ever stayed in a room with, with blackout curtains? Right? Many hotels have, have blackout curtains. Um, these curtains tend to block out far more light than your typical curtains and they're more conducive to sleep when you're in a room with blackout curtains and there's no lights from any electronics or anything else shining in the room you truly cannot see your hand in front of your face it's a darker kind of darkness this darkness that fell upon the land of egypt was deeper than even that because our text goes out of its way to stress just how deep this darkness was verse 21 says this was a darkness to be felt. That means it was thick. It was a heavy darkness. Now, the only other place that this Hebrew word is used in the Bible is when Samson, who no longer has any eyes, reaches out his arms and feels the pillars of the Philistine temple. And just as he could feel those pillars with his hands, so Moses is saying this was a darkness that could actually be felt by the Egyptians verse 22 uses the phrase pitch darkness that's how the ESV translates it uh, literally it's in the hebrew it's dark darkness right so remember we've talked about this how in ancient times they used repetition to emphasize so this wasn't just darkness this was dark darkness and then as if we haven't gotten the point verse 23 makes it even clearer this darkness was so thick that people could not see each other and they had to remain in their homes they could not go outside of those places where they were most familiar. In our homes, most of us maybe could get around in pitch black darkness because we kind of know where things are. We have a, a mental picture in our mind. But to go outside in this heavy darkness was to risk injury or even death. This was a paralyzing darkness over the land of Egypt. Everything stopped. For 72 hours, everything stopped in pitch darkness. Imagine the thoughts that people were having as they sat in darkness for 72 hours. And by the way, they didn't know it was going to end in 72 hours. They didn't know that it would ever end. They are just waiting in pitch darkness. Imagine how easy it was for people to begin to feel disoriented, discombobulated, lost, Imagine how easy it is after 72 hours in pitch darkness to begin going a little, a little mad. Others had plenty of time to reflect on what has been happening in Egypt all these past months and what all of these plagues mean. We should not be surprised that when e- Israel actually leaves Egypt to serve the true God in just a few days after this plague, many of the Egyptians are going to go with them. Why? Well, they had 72 hours to sit and do nothing else but think. about what God has been doing to their nation. And that leads to our third observation. There was light in Goshen. There was light in Goshen. That, That part of Egypt where the Israelites dwelt had light when the rest of Egypt did not. Now, despite people trying, there is no natural explanation for why Goshen had light and Egypt did not. To talk as if this can be explained as some kind of natural eclipse, it's impossible. What kind of eclipse blocks out the light of the sun, but not only the light of the sun, all light altogether? What kind of eclipse lasts for three days, blocking out the light of the sun, the light of the moon, and the light of the stars? What kind of eclipse would that be? Uh, What kind of eclipse blocks out light for an entire nation while letting light through for one small region? Of that nation in other words when you think about it there could be no doubt this was the miraculous supernatural hand of God and the significance was palpable the followers of the Egyptian deities were in darkness and the followers of Yahweh were in light and everybody knew it over 72 hours the word got out right the followers of Yahweh the followers of Moses God they're in the light We who follow the the Egyptian deities, we're in darkness. It It was as if God was giving a visible picture of spiritual realities. And could He have given a clearer visible picture than this? It is those who belong to God. It is those who can say He is our God and we are His people. They are the ones who have real light to see in this world. It is is God's people who can begin to make some real sense of this world through His Word and by His Spirit. It is Christians who can begin to see what is the right way to go and the wrong way to go. and, and, And it is God's people who can walk in a way that is safe. But those who follow after the gods of this world are in darkness. They will never be able to make real rational sense of this world. They will never be able to make real sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is the the safe way to go. Those who do not follow the true God cannot rightly distinguish between what is real and what is counterfeit, what is beautiful and what is ugly. They are in pitch darkness. What do we sing when we sing Amazing Grace? I once was blind. I was blind. But now I see. What is the testimony of the Christian? C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Are you in the light? Have you come to Christ in such a way that through His truth, you're now beginning to see straight in this world? Or could it be that any of us are still fumbling about in the darkness? Unable to know what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. Note our fourth observation. Pharaoh continued still to try and negotiate with God. He's still trying to negotiate with God. Friends, don't don't do what Pharaoh did. When God calls you to do something, don't try and negotiate. Earlier, Pharaoh had said only the men could go. And God would not bargain with Pharaoh. Pharaoh. God had said everyone would go, the men, the women, the children, with all their possessions, with all their livestock. And now Pharaoh says, okay, I've given in. You can all go. The women can go. The children can go. But leave your animals. He's trying to hold on to something, some kind of dignity here, right? Some kind of, of power. He, he wants some place, even if it's tiny, he wants some little place at the bargaining table with God He doesn't yet understand that he is the creature and that God is the creator. And when we try and put ourselves at the bargaining table with God, we're seeking to make ourselves equal with God, something we can never be. It's not the place we belong. It's not the place where we will find joy or peace. Ask the devil. The place we belong, the place we were created to have was on our knees before the Holy God, looking to Him for all we need, being satisfied in Him as He cares for us and provides for us and leads us. We don't negotiate with God. We ought to find our freedom and our joy in surrender. Surrendering is a wonderful place to be when we're talking about Almighty God. One of my favorite songs is by a Christian band from the 90s called The Waiting. And the song is called Hands in the Air. And it's about this man who is struggling to surrender. He knows that God is calling for him to do something. Um, He doesn't say what it is in the song. Maybe there's a sin that God's calling him to give up. Maybe it's some act of obedience that he's been resisting. But whatever it is, this man has been fighting with God. He's been trying to resist God. He's been been wrestling against God. But, But like God with Pharaoh this man is beginning to realize that God has proven too strong. So at the beginning of the song, he says things like this. He says, On these lonely, raging mornings, I would whip you if I could, but you're on the mighty side of strong, and you're on the perfect side of good. And now that I'm exhausted, I think I'm ready to admit that I have spent all my resistance on someone I can't resist. I've been toe-to-toe too long, and I'm tired of fighting you. You see, you were too strong." because I am black and blue. You ever been there? You ever been there with God? You ever found your will resisting what you know God would have you do? And have you ever had God beat you down? Have you ever had God make you feel miserable until you were brought to a place where you could not fight anymore? And when you finally surrendered, it turned out to be the most wonderful thing. It's a gracious place to be. In the song, the man finally comes to that place of surrender. and He says this, using this picture, he says, Light from my windowsill, I move across the yard. All that my will allows, my every step is hard. Now in the garden, I carve out six feet of space and there make my will comply and lie down upon my face. You see the picture. He's, he's going into the yard and he's burying his own will. He's saying, no longer am I going to live according to my will. I'm going to do the will of the Lord. It's, it's a picture of dying to self, of burying every ounce of resistance against God. By the way, it's a picture of baptism. What are we saying when we get baptized? We're saying, I am dying to living according to my own will, and I am going to follow the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Finally the man says this Now I understand what losers do to win, how every dying man is sure to rise again. And so I raise my left hand one, and I raise my right hand too, and under the morning sun my spirit cries to you Okay, hear what I say as I raise my hands and surrender today, right here under the sun, singing Thy will be done. Okay, hear what I say. Hands in the air singing, Have thine own way. Have thine own way. By the way, those are the words of a happy Christian. Do you know that? That's, that's where the Christian is when he's happiest. At the place of surrender. Knowing I am in the hands of Almighty God and I will do what He calls me to do. Yes, the cost can be high. Oh, God can call us to do anything. So the cost can be high. But how wonderful to have the freedom of saying, thy will be done. Have thine own way. Wherever you lead, I will go. I'll follow my Lord who loves me so. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Are you there? Is that where you are with Christ? Are you at the place of complete surrender with your life? Notice our fifth observation. Moses declared that he will not see Pharaoh's face again. He declared that he will not see Pharaoh's face again. So the ending of this account is really something because it's, it's thick with irony, right? Basically, Pharaoh first declares to Moses that he must be careful never to see Pharaoh's face again. Pharaoh says to Moses, if you see my face again, I'm going to kill you. Moses, I've had too many of these, you showing up while I'm going to the Nile in the morning, right? Right? I'm tired of seeing you come announcing these plagues. If I see your face again, you will die. Now, one question we might ask is, can Pharaoh even see his face now in the midst of this plague of darkness? I suppose we can assume that maybe there's some candles or some torches, something being used to, to facilitate this encounter. I, I would assume Moses can see Pharaoh's face now. But Pharaoh is threatening that if Moses ever sees him again, Moses will die. And yet think of the irony. Pharaoh can't seem to control whether anyone can see anybody's face much these days. Pharaoh is still acting as if he has some power. But this entire kingdom has been paralyzed through this agent of God who's standing before him. Moses is now the one in the position of authority. This simple shepherd with his simple shepherd staff, has brought the mightiest nation on earth at this time to its knees. And Pharaoh is still almost in insanity, acting as if he still has some control. And Moses is not intimidated. This little speech from Pharaoh is almost laughable. John Mackey calls this the bluster of an overwhelmed man denying his own powerlessness. Bluster. You ever hear somebody who's blustering? <laughs> this is Bluster. But on the other side, Moses can speak with confidence because he is the Lord on his side. Moses says to Pharaoh, As you say, I will not see your face again. Those are strong words from someone who just made everything pitch black in the last three days. Uh, Pharaoh speaks authoritatively, but he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Moses speaks authoritatively, and he has the power of God behind him. Now, it's hard to overstate how powerful this assault was against Egypt's chief god, right? We've been looking at all these gods that have been assaulted by these plagues. Well, there was no god in Egypt that was exalted more highly than the god Re, sometimes called Ra. He was the god of the sun, this was the, the chief god of the sun. There were, there were other gods of the sun. There was Horus, god of the sunrise, Aten, god of the midday sun, Atum, god of the sunset. You see, the sun was at the very center of Egyptian worship. Each morning, the Egyptians would begin their day by offering worship to Rei for having conquered the darkness once again and having brought about the brand new day. Re was considered to be their creator God, the ultimate God, the God from whom all life came. In his commentary, Philip Ryken includes this hymn that Egyptians would sing to their God Ray. They would say, unique God, there is none besides him. You mold the earth to your wish, you and you alone, all people, herds and flocks, all on earth that walk on legs, all on high that fly with wings. Riken says every morning the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed the life-giving power of ray. Sunset represented death in the underworld, but the rise of ray in the morning offered the hope of resurrection. For the Egyptians, it was a matter of faith that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed. Now remember, the Egyptians also believed that Pharaoh was the human incarnation of ray on earth. In Egyptian schools, we know that the children were taught to worship Pharaoh, living forever within our bodies and associate with his majesty in your hearts. He is Ray, by whose beams one sees. So you see, Pharaoh, Ray, the sun, these things were all interconnected in the Egyptian mind. They, they connected light with Ray and with Pharaoh. Egyptians would pray to Pharaoh, saying, Attend to me. O oh, rising sun that illuminates the two lands with its comeliness, O oh, solar disk of mankind that dispels darkness from Egypt, thy nature is like unto thy father Ray who arises in heaven. Pharaoh was called a son of God, son S. Owen. He was considered a son of Ray, a human incarnation of Ray. This was one way in which the devil set up a counterfeit of the true God and the true Son of God, who would come later as a true human being. This ninth plague was disastrous for the faith of Egypt. Their holiest God was powerless against the God of the Hebrews. Their highest symbol, the the great solar disk, the sun was shut off from them by the power of Yahweh. At this point, there could only be one rational conclusion. The true God, the highest God, the almighty God, is Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Moses, the God of Israel. He is much more powerful than Ray. By the way, it is this God, Yahweh, who came to earth as a man named Jesus Christ, declaring, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John eight twelve. What is the prophetic lesson from this plague? Each plague foreshadowing, hinting at the great judgment to come. Those signs that God is performing even now to warn people of the great judgment to come. Well, in the same passage that we've turned to time and again, in Revelation 16, we find that the Apostle John uses this picture of darkness to describe something that's happening in our world right now. In verses 10 through 11, we learn that we are in the midst right now of a plague of darkness. Here's what those two verses say. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. But they did not repent of their deeds. In other words, one of God's judgments on this world as we move towards the final judgment is this. The kingdom of the beast has been plunged into darkness. That is, those who have refused to honor God but have given their allegiance to this world are now part of societies which have been given over to greater and greater darkness. The the, the worldliness of this world, the, the secular societies of this world, the ungodly societies of this world, they're being plunged into darkness. They're being given over to it by God so that they're going deeper and deeper into the darkness. Moral confusion is only going to get worse. Idolatry is going to get worse. The man-made illusions that people take as fact only get worse when people reject the light. God gives them over to the consequences of that. They, They reject the God of light. They don't want light. They take to themselves darkness, and God gives them over to the darkness. The darkness of secularism or the darkness of false religion. And they go further and further and further down that rabbit hole. And where does it lead? Revelation 16 says it leads to people in anguish and suffering. When people go deeper and deeper into their rejection of God, they end up hurting themselves. Look at the atheistic societies of our world. Look at Russia. Look at North Korea. See the results of the path that those societies have taken. See how Russian men now have an average life expectancy under 60 years old. Why? Because of despair and depression that now characterize that society and the rise of alcoholism as people have taken to the bottle to try and drown away their despair. The irony of Revelation 16 is this. As people face the consequences of having been given over to the darkness they preferred, they then curse God as if he is the one to blame for their torments. In other words, even though they chose darkness and rejected the God of light and were given what they wanted, darkness, they yet curse God for the anguish that that darkness brings to them. Revelation says that these people refuse to repent. And right now we live in a world in which there are millions, indeed billions, who have rejected God and are running headlong into darkness. And They're living their lives that way. And when they get into trouble, what do they do? They curse God for their problems and refuse to come to him. They reap what they've sown, but they curse God and use it as another excuse not to come. So the prophetic lesson of our passage is that in these last days, people will be given over to greater and greater darkness and its consequences Though many will still refuse to repent. By the way, that's Pharaoh in our passage. Still refusing to repent. Finally and briefly, let's note our ninth purpose of these plagues. And here is the ninth purpose. To teach that nothing less than a miracle will bring a person to repentance. Nothing less than a miracle will bring a person to repentance. You see, at the end of the day, If God doesn't humble our hearts and bring us to repentance, we will never be saved. Reason alone will never win anyone to Christ. Pharaoh has been given reason. If reason was the converting power to save people, Pharaoh should have submitted to God a long time ago. But our minds serve our hearts. What we prefer, our minds can find a way to justify If anyone has plenty of evidence before him that he needs to submit to God, it's Pharaoh. But reason alone won't suffice. His heart still craves power and rebellion. And so his mind finds ways to explain away the wrong he's doing. Displays of power won't save people. Sometimes we might think that if only God would perform some great miracle that everyone could see, then many would come and many would be saved. But Pharaoh witnessed many amazing miracles. Some of the most amazing miracles in the history of the world, Pharaoh witnessed. And he still refused to repent. Jesus himself performed more miracles than the Apostle John said he could even write down. And yet that many miracles was not enough for the people who followed after Christ. They always wanted more. They were always saying, give us one more sign, then we'll believe. Displays of power are not enough to save someone. At the end of the day, salvation only comes when the gracious hand of God reaches down and changes our stubborn hearts. It is God who grants repentance and salvation. And He does so as He wills. Dear friend, Has God worked in your heart so that you now love Him and submit to Him and find your joy in serving Him? If you've come to the place of repentance and surrender, give all the glory to God. Give it all to Him and be grateful. Be so grateful for what He's done for you. And if there's anyone in here who hasn't come to that place, I would urge you all that I am to raise up that white flag of surrender know what it is to give yourself completely to the will of God. And say, here I am, I'm yours. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Have thine own way. May God help us all to walk in the light of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.